Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Sure, sure. Uh, my name is Ryan Kalo, and I am a law professor at uh, the University of Washington. Thanks so much for joining us, Professor. So today's episode about uh, the racism and robotics. So first of all, I would like to ask you, and that's a question because um, when we look to specifically in robotics field and also machine learning community, we have the issue about the race and um, issue about how we design robotics and uh, even when we think about it uh, as intellectually or in terms of representation or design. So maybe the first question comes to everyone's mind, why there's racism in the first place if you speak about scientific community like robotics? Why is there racism? I mean, I think that racism is um, a facet of American and other societies mm -hmm. and that robotics and roboticists are a part of society. Mm. Um, and I think that uh, uh, racism and race play out um, perhaps in specific ways in, within robotics that are um, uh, at times a bit different, but, um, but you know, it's just, we're a part of society. Um, mm. And, and um, you know, we are, we, the community of roboticists and the community of people that study um, robotics law and policy like like I do, um, I feel like we have an ob obligation just as the rest of society to be actively anti-racist and to try to understand the role of race mm -hmm. um, in the field and to address um, address its problems and challenges. Mm -hmm. So maybe I should ask a question because I think that's something very important. What could be the faces of racism in robotics? If you can give examples, the, the basis. Oh, of course, of course, yeah. So, it's it's complicated, and I'm and I just wanted to be clear that the examples I'm going to give and the categories I'm about to give are not meant to be exhaustive. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, I'm just giving some some examples, um, and and also you know um, uh, I just just be upfront and clear that you know I'm I'm a, a, a straight white guy. Mm -hmm. um, and my lived experience and my, the way that I have um, interacted with robotics from a young age uh, could be dramatically likely to be dramatically different um, than other people's um, who have a different lived experience than I. But I have, you know, read and, and, and thought about the role of race and I've read papers about the subject um, in the past. So what, what I would say is that, you know, first of all, um, there is who there is a question of the identity of roboticists themselves and the identity of those who use robots and mm -hmm. um, and make and use robots. So the, the question is, you know, are there um, uh, a sufficient, a critical mass at a minimum, but a, are there a sufficient number um, of, of people of color working in the robotics field, yeah. um, working on teams to, to develop robotics and, and machine learning? Um, and so that is one one set of questions. Um, are another set of questions is around um, are because of the way in which robotics uh, leverages technologies that um, such as leverages techniques such as machine learning that are trained on existing databases. Are there ways in which um, robotics interact differently or not as well mm -hmm. um, with people of color and a, and a famous you know well a well-known example of this that's relatively straightforward in automation is the way in which black and brown hands yep. may not trigger automated um, faucets or or dryers or other things like that because the system has not been uh, designed using um, black and brown hands as models, right? Mm -hmm. um, another, uh, you know, so there, so there's, it just simply may not be work as well. Um, another very well-known example is the way in which facial recognition mm 
yeah. has not historically worked as well. Um, but I think that that you know that's so that's another issue. Who's making these robots and selling exactly. them? Uh, are, are, are they working as well for for people of color as they are for others? Um, and then I think though one of the most important things to to remember is how are robotics being deployed in the world and who is being harmed and who is being helped by mm -hmm. robots what is the what is the effect that may that is likely to be disproportionate of robotics on displacement of labor when it comes to people of color are, are, are people of color in jobs that are being displaced to a greater degree um are they are are, are those people who are displaced getting adequate training um one of the areas that I study very closely is policing and surveillance. I'm a privacy scholar and a former police investigator. Yeah. Um, how, how is robotics being used um, in, in policing? And is that inuring to the, to the disproportionate detriment um, of people of color? Or are there opportunities, as some argue, to improve policing uh, through um, automation and, and, yeah. uh, and robotics? Yeah, that's true. That's true. But maybe let's be realistic about that point, because I think um, this topic is very important. And I have the perception that some people say it is just cosmetic image that we have the inclusion and diversity. And I, I have I had the pleasure to to serve along with my colleague uh, as inclusion chair at Robotic Science System Conference. I have the question, what's inclusion meant to us? And when I speak to some people, they say that um, maybe friends outside the community or, or colleagues as well, they don't believe what you say doesn't make any sense. This is really doesn't make any sense. And I have to be honest, I have to agree with that because I, I have the perception inside um, each university in robotics lab or department, there's different politics. And, and sometimes, yeah, this is not really deployed effectively. I'm sorry, I, I'm just honest, but uh, I don't know how do you see this problem? Because if we want to have uh, radical change, how do you see the issues handled in department, university, especially in robotics? Well, um, you know, okay, so, so I, I'm, um, I'm going to answer this question. I just want to just again caveat it with the idea that I'm, I'm not in a robotics department. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and, and so, um, but that said, I can, I can certainly tell you that at the university of Washington, yeah. um, the, the Allen school of computer science and engineering, as well as our electrical engineering department are being very deliberate about trying to make sure that there is at least a diverse, um, class of graduate students. Um, and the way that they're doing that is through recruiting efforts and additional supports for people for whom um, a graduate school might be the first time mm -hmm. they're doing it or otherwise um, uh, face sort of challenges. Mm -hmm. I will say that I, I've heard um, the following. Fei uh, uh, Fei, who is was the um, head of the AI lab at uh, the, the AI program at Stanford, um, uh, I heard her uh, in, a, I was on a panel with her once at the, um, president Obama's frontiers conference. And, you know, she talked about one of the important things that you need to do is you need to, um, reframe what it is to work in computer science and what it is to work in artificial intelligence yeah. so that a more diverse group of people feel like it's something they, they could see themselves doing. And so she talked about, Feifei talked about the idea of reframing computer science as a form of problem solving and redressing societal issues and, yeah. you know, and, and not, and, and not to, not to think of it as sort of like the, the, the classical model of, of hackers in sweatshirts, you know, turning out code, but rather to think of it as a, a, a means by which to effectuate change and to, and to, and to improve society. Um, and so, you know, I, 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 I don't disagree. I, I, I think what you're saying is that you don't see this working so well just yeah. yet. And you think of it as somewhat cosmetic. And I, I have to say, I agree with you. Um, but I think, I think, you know, that, that there is a lot of thought being put into it. I mean, right now I, I co-direct something called the tech policy lab at the university of Washington and my co-director Tadayoshi Kono yeah. is the new diversity, equity, and inclusion chair 
um, at, at, you know, assistant associate director rather within the Allen School of Computer Science and Engineering. And I just know from talking to him that he and his colleagues are really focused on this and um, just just they're aware that what has been what they've been doing before is not working and they're trying, you know, new models. So one could be hopeful, but disappointed at the same time. Yeah. I think maybe the intuitive question here, because I think that's maybe also a question many students ask, why uh, maybe certain academics in both the community, and also I think your issue in academia in general, don't believe in inclusion and diversity? Why they don't believe in that? What, where does it come from? And where, where does it come yeah. from? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know where it comes from precisely. You know, like I said, at the outset, I, I think that society has a structural race problem. Mm -hmm. right? You know what I mean? I mean, and, yeah. and 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 so and roboticists and robotics departments and everybody else is part of society. Um, I imagine that um, uh, biases that people don't realize that they have, or um, commitments that people believe that they have that they that they sorry commitments that people have about what it is to do robotics and what the work entails and what excellence is and what yep. you know what you know what it you know that those things um uh, are, are are closely held by robotics professors and others right um and, and without even understanding the ways in which uh they may um the ways in which they may uh, reproduce um, racial hierarchy and and reproduce exclusion. I have to say though that whether or not um, I, I don't come, I, I don't know if you do, and you may because you have a very you know different lived experience than me. I, I would assume um, as a technologist and a technologist of color, but I have to say I don't overtly hear people say I don't care about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Do you know what I mean? It's like yeah, it, yeah, they, yeah, they no. don't go around saying, I don't care about that. In fact, most people you talk to yeah. say that they do care. Or if you ask them, they say that they care. But yeah. then it's fair to ask if they care, why is the why is the situation not improving? And I think it has to do with the reticence to ra radically rethink how people are admitted to these programs and what and what it you know. So, so for example, uh, think about the attention in the academy yeah. on standardized testing. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like this sort of idea that standardized testing is incredibly important, and we have to get these you know people in the door who score very very high on certain kinds of standardized mm -hmm. tests. When we when we know that those standardized tests are stacked against um, applicants of color in some cases, right? Yeah. And so like you know, so if you rely on something you think as being meritocratic. And important and a good gatekeeping function, and that 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 mm -hmm. system, you know, is actually is actually um, racist, and and you know, then you really need to be thinking about like how how do we, you know, yeah. either debias the system or really better yet rethink how we assess um, uh, how we predict success in the field. You know what I mean? And yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I'm not trying to make an apology for anybody. I'm sure there are overtly racist people out there, but I I don't I think a lot of it is not like I. People saying I don't care about yeah. inclusion. I, I think, think it's I think it's people. Yeah, yeah. right. I, I think this is a very interesting point. I, I would like also because I think this, this discussion is important because I again this discussion will be important for a student maybe who will become the next generation leader of the field. But again, I think this point about being I'm sorry to say it, by being double faced because we know some people will just explore the image they care about inclusion and diversity and inside the labs uh, they don't deploy the concept. And that's shame, to be honest with you. And also, we have a robotics conference, for example, that happened about inclusion when um, audience become angry because there is no diversity and inclusion in the panel. And the responses by one of the panelists that we have age diversity and there was no one of person of color. Of course, again, this topic is sensitive, and here we we want to highlight people who did a good work. Uh, regardless of the where they belong from, uh, from and that's the concept of inclusion. And again, when we have the right people and diverse people again, um, and design robotics, do you think in academia and industry, from your perspective, do you think in industry um, maybe less worse than what happened in academia? Because in academia, 
and, and robotics, academic robotics as well, that sometimes if we don't have diverse people and have inclusion that everyone, because you can have diversity in the room, everyone you are here, we are diverse, but in reality, we are not inclusive. We don't care about your opinion. And that's uh, the tricky point here that everyone mm. speak, uh, free to speak about. And if we wanted to come up with a solution for solving this problem, what's the, the road that make this hidden wall that we are diverse, but we are not inclusive? And then we can design uh, these robots so that, that could be inclusive as well. Yeah, well, the, first of all, that's, a, that's an excellent point that merely having um, the, the right uh, identity in the room it, yeah. it, it, so that you have technical diversity is not the same thing as being inclusive. Yeah. Well, here's what I think. I, I, I think that, I think that, you know, what, what, re, you know, people can say whatever they want. Yeah. Um, I think that the, the proof is in where are you, where is one directing resources, tangible resources like money and time. You know what I mean? And yeah. so like, you know, so who are you giving scholarships to? Mm -hmm. uh, who are you who are you hiring for 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 your high paying jobs? Um, who are you giving budget to in, 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 in a um, uh, in a corporate context? Right. Yeah. And so, like, for example, you know, it's not just about like whether some team has. You know, a black person on or several, you know what I mean? It's mm -hmm. about do these people, do, do the people of color um, have have real power that that as measured by do they have control over budget? Yeah. Do they have control over design decisions and things like that? Mm -hmm. um, is industry doing a better job? I don't actually know. You know, I don't yeah. actually know. I th I think I think that the robotics companies I've interacted with um, are short on on diversity, um, and I think that the academy is short on on diversity. Um, and I also think that there is a relationship between the two because mm -hmm. if if not enough people of color are getting adequate training, um, then in robotics, then you're not going to see um, those those particular people reflected uh, in industry. Although I have to be very clear, mm -hmm. though, I don't th I think this notion that it's a quote unquote pipeline problem alone is erroneous. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I think that often when you look into it you see that there are far more people with PhDs in robotics or related fields that are people of color. Um, and that it's not, and, and if you, and it's not really a, at least alone, a pipeline problem, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's also like who is selected, who is elevated, who is listened to. Mm -hmm. um, so, but I want to, I want to just, if I may, and, and, you know, bring me back if you want, but I wanted to just pivot a little bit to make sure we talk about um, the decision, not only, how to make a robot mm. but but because often ro robots are are these open platforms that that have like multiple use cases and they're designed in a particular way but you know apart from like you know not making all robots look a particular way or sound a particular way or improving machine learning um you know, de you know, detectors, I guess we would say detectors yeah. and classifiers to, to not perform to f perform just as well on, on uh, with people of color than the not, you know, and there's also the decision of where does that stuff get deployed. And so for example, who's making the decision of whether yeah. robots are being sold to um, uh, immigration authorities? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Wh who's who's making who's making decisions about whether or not drones and other robots are being used um, uh, to to surveil um, Black Lives Matter protests. Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? It's like yeah. th there's also a question and these these this doesn't have to be roboticists precisely. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but like, you know, how are these robots getting used and, and who is who, to whose benefit and to whose detriment? And so if you're selling robots to predominantly white uh, uh, police forces, police forces, or, or or immigration authorities, and then they are turning around and using these systems, robots, mm -hmm. um, uh, AI systems, uh, to the to the detriment and and harming uh, people of color. You yeah. know what I mean? Like yeah, that yeah, is a, yeah. that is another. You know what I mean? And so and so it's it's it can't just be that roboticists are designing robots that are better. You know, <laughs> sort yeah. of suited to you know are not offensive. You know what I mean? But but also like where are these 
technology is getting deployed and by whom and for what purpose. Yeah, I think that's a really excellent point because I had um, in the podcast also uh, Professor Tom, he, and he had hmm. a petition that we don't want to have a funding on grant from, um, like, for example, military institution just to make sure that technology develop is not going to be uh, deployed, as you mentioned, to, against black people or person of color or immigrant. And that's, I think, a very excellent point because, and that's come again to about solution. Do you think that maybe uh, the funding plays a rule? How the funding, uh, where you get funding from, grants from? Do you think that's something we have to maybe double look again and make sure uh, where does money come from? Yeah, I mean, so I think I think money money matters a tremendous amount. Um, but I think that we tend to overemphasize funding um, instead of um, procurement, mm -hmm. right? So to me, it matters where funding comes from. Um, it matters that it comes from this or that corporation, this or that government organization. Yeah. You know, but as you know, as you know very well, I mean, a lot of the money for robotics comes from, for example, NSF. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, and on the health side, NIH and and so on. There, there are, of course, um, IARPA and DARPA are yeah. big, you know, the, the military is a big funder as well. Um, and, you know, but but at the same time, like, you know, th this is funding often pretty uh, b basic research. And while there is a danger that the funding source will shape the kinds of questions and products, like I totally understand that. Mm -hmm. To me, to me, the place that we need to look most carefully and first is is, you know, like, who, who is using these robots and what are they using them for? And so, yes, that is true that that dictates, that's dictated from the outset by where it's funded. So, for example, if Department of Homeland Security mm -hmm. is, is funding emergency response robots versus, you know, the development of emergency response robots versus, you know, surveillance drones um, or police bomb diffusing robots or, or things like that. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. so like, depending on what, uh, um, depending on what is being funded, that does yeah. have an impact on what is available. Um, but we also need to be looking just at hard, as hard as to whom are companies selling their, their products and services? Um, what is government, which after all, we have supposedly a direct control over what are governments buying? What are, mm -hmm. what are, what are sheriffs buying? What are they asking for? Um, what are states buying? What is the federal government buying? Because I think that procurement is really a, a, a place where we ought, we ought to be able to exert control over our government, our law enforcement, our military, because they are ultimately supposed to be a democratically controlled civic organization yeah. <laughs> you know what i mean yeah, um yeah. and so um and so yes I, 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 just to answer your question it all matters right it matters where the funding comes from because that d dictates who's doing the work and uh what they're working on uh and it matters uh who is in, in making business decisions because that affects to whom these robots are being sold and therefore how they're developed and then it really matters um, uh, what the procurement pro policies are and whether those are inclusive. Um, that is to say, whether relevant stakeholders are being consulted about what the government buys and how yeah. it's used. Yeah, I agree. I think this is a question you asked about uh, how does race mediate the law and policy to response to, to robots? I think that's a related question. If you can tell us more about this point about the policy to response to robots, how this maybe effective how we can effectively answer this question so it's it it's so complicated you know because it, it all depends on sort of what aspect we're talking about so let's let's take for a moment um the question of are ai systems you know machine learning systems um robotic systems um are they disproportionately harming people of color mm -hmm. uh, as we have repeatedly seen with for example, police um, uh, police uh, 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 predictive algorithms in mm -hmm. policing, or um, uh, or uh, uh, facial recognition, um, and so on. That's 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 disproportionately harming uh, people of color. So, in order to um, how do we find out when that's happening? 
We find that when that's happening because these systems get deployed and then researchers at universities or in one case at RAND or in another case at journalistic outfits like ProPublica and now um, the markup, that these journalists and researchers and, 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 and students and, and faculty, that they're able to um, interrogate these systems. They're able to test mm -hmm. how the systems behave in the real world and to see whether or not they are, may, might have a racist impact. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, so one law and policy thing that's super important here is to make sure that that research is not chilled by the threat that the law will get involved and say, wait a second, you violated federal anti-hacking law or you violated federal copyright law by circumventing um, some kind of technical control or making the system do something on purpose to see how it react, you know what I mean? And so yeah. I, I, I joined forces with a group of computer scientists and we wrote a paper that's called, Is Tricking a Robot Hacking? Which is about whether or not, in part about whether or not adversarial adversarial machine learning um, uh, is, is hacking for purposes of federal anti-hacking laws. But mm -hmm. there's a much broader conversation to be had about whether or not researchers feel empowered to do the kind of, um, accountability work where they test systems for bias and safety uh, and, and disparate impact. Um, and so that's one place where, you know, the law could just be crystal clear that we are going to not um, uh, allow, uh, we're not going to allow um, uh, researchers who are doing accountability work to be charged. Mm -hmm. um, but it's one of many, many examples. The other one I would say is that there is a debate and I don't know how I feel about it, to be honest with you, but I'll just talk you through it. Mm -hmm. There's a debate about, there's a debate about, um, whether or not automation might help address some of the problems we have with race and law enforcement. That's and so the story, yeah, so the story would be like this. And this, this I'm just working, I'm thinking about work by Elizabeth Joe, J-O-H, um, called Discretionless Policing. I'm thinking about a paper at a robotics conference that I helped organize uh, by, by Peter Asaro uh, about uh, Black Lives Matter Black Lives Matter and, and, and do, back, do Black Lives Matter to Robocop is the name mm -hmm. of that paper. Um, so, I'm, and, uh, so I'm thinking about, about into, you know, investigations like this that, that, conclude, um, that conclude that there might be a way in which taking away the discretion of police officers to effectuate traffic stops, for example, mm -hmm. um, will, will result in, in, in more fair um, uh, you know, if you automatically enforce traffic laws, then you are hopefully removing from the picture um, uh, all, all these all these officers who are pulling people over for driving while black, for example. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or or another or example that Peter uses, Peter Saro uses, and, and I don't. He's not normatively committed to this at all. He's just he's just bringing it up as an example. But Peter uses the example of. Um, Given the fact that a lot of violence against uh, people of color by the police winds up being justified on the basis that the officers said that they felt imperiled. Do you know what I mean? Like the officers like felt like they were, they say that they felt like they were in danger and that's why they used force. Mm -hmm. Right. And then, and then, and then irrespective of whether they were really in danger, <laughs> you know, they use that force and then it becomes justified. And I investigated allegations of police misconduct in New York City at, yep. a, at the time of Ahmed, at the time of Amadou Diallo, who was shot 40 some odd times while he was holding his wallet on his own stoop. You know what I mean? And but yeah. but what the officer said then 20 some odd years ago and what they say today is the same, which is, you know, um, uh, I, we, we, I feared for my sake, for my safety. So if you deploy robots instead of police officers, it doesn't make sense to say the robot feared for its safety. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, and so therefore, you wonder whether or not having robots on the front line might remove that um, veil, remove that that excuse. Yeah. For you see what I mean? And so and so like in those ways, it could be positive. Like you can, if you if Joe says you have know, discretion is policing, maybe fewer people get pulled over for driving while black. Whereas Peter says, you know, hey, let's look at whether or not the standard for force should be different if we have more robots in the field. Now, the counter argument is, OK, but, you know, in practice, 
these systems themselves end up entrenching and reifying and reproducing race problems if they're if they're trained poorly and so on right so i don't want to be like naive about it (laughs) you know uh but but these are these are ways in which um you know we can decide to do policing differently uh in a way that in theory in theory if not always in practice but in theory could be um uh uh anti-racist in that it, 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 it improve, materially improves the lives of people of color. But again, I don't want to be naive. I, I understand that that in practice, automated policing might run into all the same kinds of problems that predictive policing has or facial recognition has. Yeah, I think that's a really excellent point. And that's a little question about, um, because we have this question about how we design maybe automation, automated system is not biased and and fair more than human because we know bias is ingrained in us as a human being. But um, if we speak about justice and this, this kind of qualities, um, do you think, because I think uh, we are far beyond to speak about that because we still have the issue in how we design and, have, and how we have the people it's, uh, in the first place. So um, what could be solution? Is it about education? If you want to make a radical change about that because still we have a face racism and and that shame that we are 2020 and we still have these events happening uh, around the world and especially yes. Uh, so what do you think is the solution? Why is this, why we still fade that in our societies and as a human being? Do you think it's about education in the first place or ignorance? Why is this happening? I mean, why is it happening? I mean, so, so there's a story about um, the way that machine learning works Mm-hmm. Right. And so and so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a little out of my out of my depth. Remember, I'm a, I'm a law professor. But, you know, it, the, the basic idea, of course, is that um, in a in a training phase, you train a model mm-hmm. uh, and then that model is introduced to data that has been held out of the training set or is, is novel. And then it does a form of pattern recognition. And so as multiple scholars have pointed out, in especially in recent years, um, you know, you, but but also decades ago i mean i'm thinking about um batia uh, friedman's article with uh, helen nissenbaum mm-hmm. you know what i mean which yeah. is which is about um uh discrim- you know discriminatory systems a like computer bias basically and that was from the 90s mm-hmm. um but uh so anyway um so uh, uh but what they've pointed out is that you have a problem where if you have biased data sets they then reproduce bias um so basically um uh, you have an issue in, in if you, so you just look at this one thing, which is like the, the data itself. So to the mm-hmm. extent that machine learning is going to continue to rely on enormous amounts of past data, yeah. that past data in that it has bias in it is only going to be reconstructed and amplified. Right. And so at the tech policy lab, we have worked on that issue. In fact, we have a number of different issues that have to do with diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. I'm happy to tell you about other ones, but one of them is about the notion of data statements, where, um, which it developed initially for natural language processing. And the idea this is Emily Bender, Batya Friedman. Um, the idea is to uh, uh, create a template for um, researchers to identify the databases that they are using and, and creating and to give their attributes. So that future researchers can understand, you know, when, when uh, what the biases are that adhere in those database sets. Um, you know, it, it, there's also been an issue that I just uh, saw Kate Crawf- Crawford flag for me on Twitter, mm-hmm. or for everybody on Twitter, which is that um, uh, you have these databases that are biased and they end up getting taken down because they're biased. But then somehow the academic community continues to rely upon them and publish papers about it, exactly. using them. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so... You know, so so part of it is a is a bias in bias out problem, um, to 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 paraphrase the title of, of one particular yeah. paper, um, and you know, and so that's that's that. But but then even if you were to somehow quote unquote solve the bias problem, um, then you run into an issue where the technologies might be disproportionately deployed against a certain population and in favor of another. So yeah. I've never been very. Um, I've, I've always sort of been concerned about the argument that the reason that we can't use facial recognition is full stop because it doesn't work for black and brown faces. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been, I, I remember very clearly Alondra Nelson pointing out that um, it's, 
it's not necessarily a good idea to make a facial recognition work for black or brown and brown faced as well, because those are the very populations we might worry about being over surveilled. So even as we say facial recognition is biased against people of color, we might also say the solution is not to improve it full stop. You know what I mean? Like, yes, it probably should be better for, you know what I mean? And like, it's not good that it's biased, but at the same time, the, the other question is, assuming we perfect these systems, who will they be used against, right? So, so think about the Uyghur population in China, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. What, if, what if you heard that, gosh, what if there was a big story that said, gosh, that, you know, it doesn't work well on, on Uyghur faces, the Chinese facial recognition, yeah. because it was trained on, on, other kinds of, on other kinds of faces, you might say, good. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, because exactly. the Chinese, the, <laughs> the Chinese exactly. are, yeah, yeah, are way, you know what I mean? And so, and so it's a very complicated, right? So it's not just about the biased data. Mm. Um, it's also about who is using the technology, who is benefiting and, and, and who is, is, is not benefiting, who is being disproportionately harmed. Yeah, I think this really excellent point again. It's like a double-edged sword. Of, um, it may be for the good and for bad and yeah, and, and I would like also to stop again at the point of about publication. You mentioned, I think, this very important point about the data and publication. Because I think in an in, in academic community, as a Robotist, we, we have a culture of publish or perish. And, and sometimes I don't know that maybe you don't have enough time to be in concern scenarios that could happen in, in real life. And how this, what you're trying to do, how it will be used at the end of the day. So how do you see this culture affecting and designing inclusive robots or and tackling the racism in robotics if we have publishing I think, parish. I, I think you're I think so what I would say is that I'm I think that you're you're right that the incentives in the academic world do not align perfectly uh, or particularly well right yeah. with um, a social justice mission in all cases mm-hmm. do you know what I mean I mean so so Here's what I think. I, 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 I have been an advocate at the University of Washington to move towards the model that I understand the Allen School uses, that the School of Information Science uses, that we really should be assessing um, scholarship and research on the basis of impact. Okay? Yeah. That it's not, that, that we shouldn't be looking exclusively at where did you p- place this paper? Was it in the right conference? Um, you know, it was it in the right journal, uh, or even necessarily how often was this paper cited? Since that's going to heavily skew in favor of uh, particular communities, people who are older have been around longer, their stuff is cited. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, <laughs> but then also men tend to cite themselves uh-huh. with greater frequency, you know, than than women. And so, you know, these these metrics can be can be biased. Um, and then, as you point out, um, you 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 might have a huge um, incentive to just pump out papers, so that when you go up for tenure and promotion, you have yeah. this long record. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, but without 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 thinking about, gosh, how is my work going to be um, redeployed in ways that are problematic? Mm-hmm. Whereas if you look, if uh, it, hopefully, if you look at impact as the relevant metric, then you can include, you know, ways in which your tool was used for a positive purpose, or you can think about ways in which your research was the basis of a congressional hearing, or you can think of, you know what I mean? You can think about all these different things that um, mm. go beyond the sheer, the sheer number of papers that you wrote and where they ended up placing. Now, is that, you know, going to address entirely the problems that you're identifying? No, of course not. You know, of course not. Um, but, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I really, I really do think in the end, um, there is not a, a an alignment, mm. um, of incentives. Yeah. In, but in maybe, academy. yeah, but maybe if you think about what could be the, the core of the problem it's a, for this what happening if you can pinpoint who is the core of this problem so I, I i cannot i cannot identify the core of the problem except for at an extremely high level of generality mm-hmm. you know what i mean and that's the that's the issue right so i could say to you uh, it's about 
you know, lingering racial hierarchy. You know what I mean? Or I could yeah. say to you, it's about whatever. But 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 let me just back up and say, um, I don't know the answer to your question. You know, I don't know the answer. I don't know exactly what it is, right? But what I would say is that it's something like a combination of a set of internal incentives and rewards yeah. within a, within the academy, okay, that do not, that, that interact with a racist society where yeah. structural inequality continues to be pervasive. You see what I mean? I, I don't think anybody in the academy is like, Twi- you know, they're 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 not. Again, I don't even think they're saying that diversity and equity inclusion isn't important, mm-hmm. right? Let alone let alone like twisting their mustaches trying to think of how to undermine people of color. You know what I mean? But yeah, yeah. but that that but but I don't mean to make light because at the end of the day, there's still the violence. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's it's it's it, 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 just just because you're not doing it consciously and intentionally doesn't mean you're not yeah. uh, causing causing violence. And so. Um, and, 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 you know, cultural violence and economic violence and actual literal physical violence. And so, you know, so I think it's about the, the, the fact that there's a certain set of incentives within mm-hmm. the academy that were not explicitly designed to be anti-racist. And yeah. they're happening against the backdrop of a society that is where racial hierarchy is pervasive, especially, I mean, my experiences with the United States, although, again, as a, as a straight white guy in the United States, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? So, yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's a really complicated problem. And I also have a made dimension, maybe in politics as well and as a human being. So it's really complicated. I agree with you. But I think maybe the message, even the podcast, I, I have inter- interviewed uh, uh, many people in our field. And as I'm also a person of color as well, and and I consider a minority here. But um, I think the message I, I, I um, we have that sometimes you con- conditionally accept it. And that's... Um, I don't know how we can um, overcome the issue of being conditionally accepted as a person of color or LGBTQ plus or any underrepresented communities. What we can do uh, that we can increase the numbers in the robotics community so that we can design inclusive robotics. Um, are you, you're asking me. Um, yeah, I mean, um, so I, I do. Again, I do think that that um, we we have to. Uh, put our our money where our, our our mouth at least and our heart should you know what I mean um, yeah. and, and and so we have to um, so we have to put our money not only into into providing scholarships and support structures for people of color who want to go into robotics but we also have to invest the time and energy as again I'm just repeating Fefe here so I don't want to take credit for this but in in re and re uh, describing robotics. Uh, in terms that will appeal to um, uh, the, the, uh, the greatest diversity of people. And then mm-hmm. once we actually manage to train uh, people of color in, in robotics, and by the way, like, I mean, I've been to many robotics labs and been to many robotics programs. Um, and you know, every time I go to the, a program or a lab, there are definitely people of color there. Yeah. You see what I mean? And I think that part of the issue is you know, we are we are pretending that uh, this is a we're we're pretending that something is a is a long term problem having to do with the fact that there's not enough a certain kind of person out there, and that what we really need to be doing is making that kind of person so that will solve the problem. That's not going to solve the problem by itself, mm-hmm. right? So, in addition to training this sort of people and supporting them and recruiting them, uh, we also have to empower them uh, by by placing them in positions of of um, not not necessarily initially leadership, um, because I don't mean that we should just take people fresh out of their PhD program and throw them in a leadership position, mm-hmm. but they need to be empowered and they need to be and leadership needs to be something that is part of the plan for them, their strategic plan for them by the institution yeah. so that in, a, in as quickly as possible, they can get into a place where they control budget. Yeah. I'll tell you, you know, I, I, rem- I remember very clearly and very vividly when I first started looking at drones, mm-hmm. which was over over 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, I, I met this lobbyist for the drone industry. Mm-hmm. OK. And I met him in D.C. And he told me that his dad, who was a Philadelphia lawyer, uh, that is which is an expression like a Philadelphia lawyer. But yeah, this father really was a lawyer in Philadelphia. 
and that is and that this and that this lawyer father said to him you know um you're going to be you're going to do fine in dc but you have to remember you know two things hmm. and and i was like oh okay what are the two things you know and, and this and this this lobbyist said my dad said to me that the two things you have to remember when you go into a meeting yeah okay remember that um whatever they're telling you they're not telling you everything hmm. and se- and second of all whatever they're talking about they're talking about money you know what I mean? And Absolutely. so, and so like, it, and, and that's always stuck with me yeah. because there is so much that goes unstated and, 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 and unaddressed and is rhetorically covered over and glossed over. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. The, the, the subtext is not the text one. And second of all, you can really tell when something matters to an organization, if they devote material resources to it, who's yeah. getting the scholarships, who's getting paid what, who controls the budget and who has a decision? You know what I mean? And like, yeah. so th- th- that's how our, I mean, now, is that a good thing? Uh, are we uh, overly capitalistic society or something? You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Maybe so, but, but that's how we are organized and structured. And so I don't believe things until I see the time and the money invested. I really like this point again, because I think you, when you mentioned about, we can't take fresh BT student graduate to leadership. And that leads me uh, another question, uh, I think very important because in academia in general, we are not trained to be a leader. And if you have, and you don't have even training to how to manage uh, money or how to be a good teacher. I speak from my experience because I used to be a yeah. lecturer and I didn't get any training how to be a good teacher. And many students suffering about that. So if you are not a good leader, um, and I think there are many BIs appointed to position because slowly they are based on publication and maybe awards, but there's no real maybe um, assessment how they are emotionally intelligent, how they can be a, a truly leader. How do you see this? I think it also this affect how we select be diverse and inclusive, um, in, be inclusive as well. Well, let me ask you this, right? I mean, I know this you're interviewing me, I guess, in this podcast, but I mean, I, I, you know, so what, um, what do you feel has helped you, um, uh, gain, gain leadership skills? Like, how did you come to learn how to teach and, and how did you, yeah, for you and how did you come to learn how to manage a budget? Like what, what were the pathways that you've pursued? Because I have my answer, but I'd love to hear yeah, what, that's a good question. what your experience was. I didn't have a grant to, uh, I can't answer first part, but for the money, I, I didn't have a grant because I was just a lecturer in my home country. So I just was a, a teaching, a tenured position, but only I was teaching. So I can t- say for teaching, because when I started, I f- figured out that oh, I can't deal with a student, how, how I can make sure they understand me and how I can respect them. And I, I started, to be honest, I look for other professors and what they do. And, and I came up with the decision that I have to make a survey feedback after first lecture and ask them what they like it and what they didn't like it. And I was trying to be honestly inclusive with them because I, I, I was trying to listen to them. And sometimes they don't like something, I, I take it seriously and I try to help. And by the end of the lectures, I may be like five or six lecture, I have another survey feedback. But I think, I think it was a big responsibility how to be a good teacher. And I, to be honest, I was freaking out when I have every time to go to lecture because I want to make sure that I have enough information for them. And most important, be compassionate with them. Because I, what I hate about academia is a hierarchy. So when you, that's concept, unfortunately, um, we have in academia that I, I, I didn't, Seriously, I didn't consider this concept that I'm a social lecturer and you're a student. I didn't, I didn't understand this concept. I, I, it's come for me that I genuinely I wanted to help and, and also learn from them and give them the information. And, and it's still now it's like seven years and I still have been in contact with them. But I don't know if that's a good answer, but uh, I wish I have the answer from you as well. But that's... Um, so I, I, think that, I think that you're... you're um experience is, is all too common and it sounds to me like um I'll, I'll say this you didn't say this but it sounds to me like you just weren't getting uh the institutional support and you had yeah. to figure it out on your own exactly yeah you know and so and so um you know whenever i hear a, a story about how someone uh became an effective leader or um 
you know, uh, became an effective fundraiser or, or manager of budgets or whatever the other things that are we're expected to do. Um, it's always either been that the person sort of experimented and failed and learned from that and then improved over time, you know, which is how I have uh, go, gone. That, that's how I've developed a capability to raise funding. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like just yeah. through kind of trial and error. Um, and uh, versus um, versus actually having um, uh, either an institutional support structure, like a teaching and learning center that everybody who teaches has to go to and gets you know, resources from, mm -hmm. right? And I think that the and so I'm 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 kind of building a kind of framework here, which I'll explain. But you know, the best thing is to have an institutional structure. Mm -hmm. The best thing is to actually have thought about this and say, our teachers and our fundraisers and our et cetera, we're, we're going to have um, a program in place where at a minimum they can go if they want and they are highly encouraged to do so. And that's an institutional commitment, right, um, where there's dedicated people to help you with that. The, the next one down and the one that I think is the more common and the one that I know I am very involved in is mentoring. Yeah mentor yeah. and so i have over the years been mentored um mm. uh i've been i've been mentored by the way by by people of color mm -hmm. i mean you know uh, uh the, the majority of the people i've worked uh for um in my career have been uh black mm. and so for example i clerked for a black judge um i worked for a black investigator when i was when i was um um, investigating allegations of police misconduct, yeah. actually to, to both the manager and the supervisor. Um, right now I have a, a, a dean who's a, who's a, a, a person of color, a black man. Um, and so, and so like I have, um, those, those mentors and of course others have modeled for me, you know, what it's like to, to, to teach effectively, to, to raise money, to, yeah. to investigate effectively, to, to, to yeah. consider, uh, you know, and so and so then in turn, um, I have tried to um, and also um, uh, women. So when I was in um, when I was in private practice, I worked directly for Erin Egan, who was at the uh, a partner at Covington and Burling. And she went on to be the head of um, uh, privacy and other issues at, at Facebook. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Barbara Van Shevick and Lauren Gelman at Stanford and so on. And so you know, these 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 people really mentored me, you know, and they taught me how to do certain things and I observed how they did certain things and so on. And so now I attempt to try to do that for other people where mm. I read their work, but I also try to like talk to them about what, how do you talk to the press? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I just recently had a situation where I was interacting with the press and I invited one of my students who's been studying this issue to kind of witness the interaction and mm -hmm. to talk, but only on background um, initially because she's a student, you know what I mean? And just, just to sort of like, how do you talk to the media? Um, mm -hmm. I worked with um, um, uh, uh, someone else. I, I don't want to give overly details because I don't want to, to um, embarrass anybody or, 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 or reveal anything, but I'll just say that I worked with a mentee on, on, a, on a grant. How do you get a grant? How do you manage a grant? And so on. Um, and so it, it's, it's uh, you know, the, these things are, um, are important. And so I think it's really important for people who are established in a field to be really conscientious about who you mentor and to have enough bandwidth at least to mentor people who have been disadvantaged because mm -hmm. they, everybody needs it, you know, yeah. but, um, but they, they maybe are need it more or, or else they're just not getting it, you know? And so, um, and so I think mentoring is critically important, but then, then the worst of the three, but the only other way is to, is to, you know, uh, basically just kind of learn by doing, Yeah, you know, and there you need yeah. an opportunity, but you can learn by doing, it's not like you can't do it. It's just not as good yeah. as the other two methods. <laughs> I think that's really brilliant because I think you maybe, uh, yeah, I think that's really, that's the core. I think how you have a, you hit the nail. I think that's something. Yeah. It's about mentoring, how, how you have a good mentor to tell you. Um, yeah, I agree with completely what you say. Yeah. Agreed, yeah. yeah, I mean, mentoring is mentoring is critical, you know, and but again, it's it, I think that, you know, um, doing by learning by doing is is no substitute for mentoring is no substitute for having an institutional commitment, yeah. an institutional structure, you know, and mentoring can also be a part of a, an institution, it can either be part of the culture of an institution, 
uh, or it can be literally built in yeah. to the institution, you know, I mean, yeah. and so like, for example, with PhD candidates, though we don't think of it this way, obviously mentoring is deeply built in because you have a PhD committee, including a supervisor. Yeah. You know what I mean? Whereas um, it's not, mentoring is not built in to graduate education in, in law where you're one of a couple hundred JD candidates mm -hmm. and there's nobody assigned to be your mentor particularly, Yeah. you know? And so there you have to do what University of Washington and other good schools have done, which is to like make mentoring happen uh, on purpose or have a culture of mentoring. Um, and so, you know, that's, it's, it's important. And I benefited from it. I benefited from it enormously. Mm -hmm. Um, and I feel it is my obligation to, to, um, to, and, and my joy to, to also be able to mentor others. Um, yeah. and because I was, um, you know, just lucky enough and, and, and made, you know, that, that I have also, um, had the, uh, uh, you know, I've been mentored by, by people of, of color. I, I in particular feel yeah. that it's my obligation to, to, to uh, work with, um, yeah. with people of color. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. So we are closing to end and we have a few questions left. Uh, do you think ego is important when you design something? Ego is important. Gosh, oof. Uh, that is going to be maybe too too big a question. I think that the best um, uh, design, um, I, th I think the best design um, uh, robots are, 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 are part of a, of a team. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. so I think that it takes a, it takes a team to, to, to build a great system um, and that the team as a whole might have an ego. They might have an investment in excellence and they might have a, you know what I mean? And, but yeah. um, I don't know. I don't know if individual ego is usually healthy. You know, that said, I mean, you know, certainly there are certain products that are as good as they are because the driver behind them is obsessed with perfection and quality <laughs> you know i don't know I, I ego can be a great motivator but i i think that really great systems are the product of great teams yeah yeah and maybe i would like to ask you what maybe is important quality because you had these really overwhelming experiences so maybe one quality you have gained and stick with you yeah so i i i increasingly think that that um the, the trick to being a successful academic and maybe the trick to being a successful almost anything, yeah. right, is to actually really listen to feedback and to incorporate it in what you're doing. Mm -hmm. and, I, and, and nowadays I can tell, you know, so, so a person has to be, you know, they have to be rigorous, they have to be creative, you know what I mean? Like they have to have knowledge, like those things are all pre prerequisites, but assuming those to be the case, like that a person has ideas and they're rigorous about going about them, and they have knowledge base, and they do their they do their homework, they do their reading, right? Assuming those things to be the case, the quality that seems to me most important is the ability to hear someone critique what you're doing and actually respond to their critique in a meaningful way. Yeah, yeah, that's you that's, know, yeah. and and you can separate out. <laughs> you can eat early on separate out academics that are yeah. never going to be able to do that and academics that are going to be able to do that and i i think that that's that seems to me a huge indicator mm -hmm. yeah that's really profound yeah and maybe i would like to skew what maybe is the best advice was given to you with a person professionally and was a life changing for you yeah so you know i unfortunately have not taken to heart the best advice that's ever been given to me mm -hmm. i i i try i try to do it all the time mm -hmm. um I, I strive to do it all the time but the best advice that i've gotten is that it's it's better to do a few things well mm -hmm. yeah okay you know don't try to do everything all the time just pick yeah. a few things and do those few things really well and i i've never mastered that I've never, that's not the right word i've never um i've never uh completely been able been able to 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 do that i've never completely taken that on board but i really believe in it deeply yeah. and the people that have told me that um uh who have been successful at it have have, have really had my admiration mm -hmm. um but if you can do I mean, if you you know that's i'll tell you what we have we at the tech policy lab yeah we have man we have managed to do that you know we do a few things really well we do a few things every year we don't try to do a million things we don't have a million events we don't have a million fellows we don't you know we don't try to do everything 
We just try to do a few things really, really well, and it's worked for us. Um, and that's because my my co-PIs, my, my colleagues, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, have that commitment to to doing a few things well. And I, I, every year I try to focus on it, and every year I wind up getting a little distracted by other things. But you know, that's that's my advice. You know, don't don't yeah. try to do everything. Just just do a few things well. Yeah, that's uh, that's really good advice. Yeah. And do you have any final words you would like to say for robotics community? Final words. No, no. I just want to express my, my gratitude for, for you reaching out to me and uh, for anyone who's listening. And I want to just be, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm particularly humbled by the fact that I am neither a roboticist uh, nor do I expressly study race. And so the fact that you've asked my opinions about those things is humbling. Um, and I hope that some of the things I've said and my experiences have been, have been useful. But yeah, I really appreciate yeah. the opportunity. Yeah, that was fun, really, and enjoyable. And I, I think we need this discussion in the community. I think that's the core before going to technical stuff. I think we need the discussion. So I appreciate your uh, time, and it was really enjoyable. Thanks a lot, Ryan. Thanks you. Thanks so much. No, it's great, great to meet with you, and and really good questions. 